So Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. As you know, typically in our church, what we do is we go through books of the Bible over these past year or so, the Gospel of John, Malachi, uh, parts of Acts, uh, most recently 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. But every once in a while, over the course of my 30-some years of ministry, I take a break from preaching through books of the Bible, and I do a topical series. And one of the topical series to which I come back repeatedly is a series that has to do with relationships, and in, in which we look at different texts from the Bible that focus on certain key relationships. Now, it hasn't been that urgent in the last couple years of our church to do a series that focuses on marriage and family, and the reason was is because we hardly had any families. Um, we started our church with some young families, but young families have the, the, uh, the tendency to get opportunities elsewhere and move away. And so, uh, after a year, all of our young families uh, with their children moved away. And instead of having a children's ministry, we had a child's ministry with only one left. Uh, we had uh, folks like me who were empty nesters, been married a long time. We had a number of uh, mature adults who had been married in the past, but no longer. And, and so we really did not have that much in the way of, of families coming up and saying, how, how do I do this marriage thing biblically? How do I, how do I build my family biblically? But... Little by little, the Lord has been bringing to us, first of all, some young unmarried people who have, some of them gotten married and others would like to be married. And then he began to bring to us some young families uh, or some young couples who are thinking about this question of family. And so now it seems appropriate uh, to look at some texts that are key texts about what God's design is. And we start back at the beginning in Genesis, this account of creation The creation particularly of the woman, and by creating the woman, God also created the institution of marriage. Now, this text is key, and we know that it's key, because when the the opponents of Jesus gave him a test about marriage, 
He went back to first principles. He went back to this text. When Paul was describing what marriage is, he went back to this text. And so we know that this text is a foundational text if we are going to understand what marriage is. And also, in our day in which the the biblical idea of marriage has been challenged from many, many different directions, it's important that we as believers go back to the Word and to these first principles and ask, what what is marriage and, and what is God's plan for marriage? That way we can evaluate biblically the ancient and the modern challenges to biblical marriage. Now, this text begins with a shocking statement. And it begins with a... A real surprise in verse 18. Then God said, it is not good. Now that should surprise us if we have been reading the creation account, chapter 1, because there is a repeated refrain in chapter 1, where God makes something on one of the days, and then he sees that it was what? Good. And good, and good, this repeated refrain, he makes uh, that work of that day and then declares that it's good, and then he gets to the end of it, and he says it was very good. And now we find this, this shocking, shocking statement that there was something in creation that was not good. But I want you to see that what was not good was not a thing. This not good thing was actually not a thing. It was a no thing. It was an absence. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a defect of creation. It was something that did not yet exist in creation. And that, that no good, no thing was the absence of a companion for the man. It was not good that the man be alone. Now, those who are unmarried and would like to be married, feel the weight of this perhaps every day and throughout the day. The, the, the no goodness of not having a companion, an associate, to go through life together. And we will get, as we develop this series, to this question of singleness and God's purpose and so on. But we see here that this was the first thing. And so God proposed a solution to fill this, this absence here. And what he says is, I will make a helper fit for him, a helper suitable for him. Now, this is a unique description, helper suitable or a fit helper. We don't find this anywhere else in scripture. We find it only here in verse 18 and in verse 20, which makes it a bit difficult because there's no other reference point uh, about this description. It's a word with a prefix on it, and it is like, I will make a helper like, but it doesn't say like him, it says something like this, like opposite him, or like in front of him, or like corresponding to him. And so it it seems what's going on here in this, this compound word, this word with a prefix, like opposite, is that it emphasized that there is a a similarity, that there is a sameness because this helper will be like, but then there is a, a difference as well. This is not an identity. This is someone who is in front of. This is someone who is opposite to him. And so it's not inappropriate that we talk about the opposite sex. 
That, that's built in here, but there is, a, uh, there is a, a similarity, an equality, and there is a difference as well with this helper. Now, some people might, might bridle a little bit at this, this, uh, this calling, uh, this, this one whom he's going to make a helper. But this is not a denigration in the least. It, it is actually very significant the way this is described here, because usually this word... I think 16 of the 19 times where this word appears in Scripture, it refers to God. God is the one who is, is uh, par excellence, He is the, the helper. And, and what is the helper? What does the helper do? Is a helper weak? No, a helper is strong. A helper has something to offer because something needs to get done and someone needs help to do it. And that's, that's important here that, that this one whom He will create for the man is called a helper because that presupposes something. It presupposes that there is work to be done and the man cannot fulfill, cannot accomplish that assigned task by himself. And we find out what that work is. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 26, 27 Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is the, the commandment that humanity was given, and it was impossible for man by himself to do that. That's why male and female were created. And Adam, well, man, needed help here to do that. So, um, now we have this, this kind of unusual, perhaps, presentation of the animals There's something of an interlude here. God says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him, but then he doesn't do it right away. He he parades the animals before Adam. And it says in verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. By the way, if you've gone to university and taken a religion course or even in high school or something and looked at Genesis and they, you've heard, well, there are two creation accounts and they're contradictory creation accounts. No, they aren't. This is a, a backing up and filling in the data here. And so this is not another creation account. This is going back and looking in more detail at the creation account. And it goes back and, and remembers that God had, had created these animals out of the dust of the earth and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. Now, this is a change as well. Because if you go back to the first days of creation, God creates something and then God calls it by name. God calls the day, day. And God calls the night, night. And God calls the the earth, earth. And God calls the heavens, heavens. And, And God calls the sea, seas. God is the one who names thing in creation because He is the creator thereof. And here he brings the animals before the man to see what the man would name them. And here's another surprise. Why doesn't God name them? 
Well, because now He's made the one whom He's left in charge of creation. And we could, with some imagination, we could imagine the scene a bit where God brings the animals. Let's say, uh, pick whatever you want. Elephant? Well, that's what we call it. He brings this, this huge creature with this skinny tail, the trunk, the tusks, the flappy ears, the, the enormous legs. And you would expect Adam to say something like, what's this? What do you call this? And then the reply comes, that's your job. You, you decide. I'm leaving you in charge of that. And then the man says, elephant. And guess what it is? It's now constituted an elephant. Now, I obviously wasn't speaking English, and we're using some imagination here, but you see the, the transfer of power that's going on here. That God has said, you are in control. I've made you, and now you are in control of naming the animals. And so what does this do? This interlude here, it emphasizes the job that Adam had to do. Now, it emphasizes another thing as well. It emphasizes Adam's, I keep calling him Adam, We'll get to that in a sec. The man, um, it emphasizes the man's aloneness. Because when the elephant comes up, well, the elephant may come up Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. And then the tiger comes up with the tigress. And, and the lion comes up with the lioness. What did all these creatures have that Adam didn't have? They had partners, and Adam didn't. And so it looks like it's emphasizing the job that the man had to do, and it's emphasizing the aloneness of the man up to this point in doing that job. So this, this prepares the way. Now, this account of the, the woman's creation is unique. It's unique in Near Eastern literature. There's nothing like it. The Bible is the only ancient Near Eastern text that has this. So if anyone ever tells you that, that in the Bible women are not important, point to this. The Bible is the only only ancient piece of literature from the Near East that, that describes the woman and gives a lot more press to the woman than to the man. There's a lot a lot more extensive description of the woman's creation that there than there is to the man's. And it fills in the brief summary that we already read in verse 27 of chapter 1. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But now it goes back and says... How does the female get here? How does the woman get here? Now, there's a difference here. The woman is unique. The animals were created out of the what? The ground. The man was created out of what? The ground. Dirt. Dust. The woman is unique because she's not created directly out of the ground. She is created out of the man. Now, here's the play on words. The play on words... The man's name is Adam, and we call him Adam. Throughout this text, it is the Adam, and so it's referring to the human, the man. But then in verse 20, it doesn't have the the in front of it, and so you'll find here in this text, it's translated Adam as a proper name. But Adam's name is simply man, human. That's what Adam is. But this is a play on words, because Adama is dirt. It's earth. It's dust. And so the man is named after dirt. Some of you suspected that, right? But right. But the man is is dusty. 
The man is earthy. That's, that's, that's the man's description. That's, that's his title. That's his name. He's, he's dusty, dirty, earthy. That's, that's the man's origin. Now, um, in contrast to the man's earthy origins, the woman comes out of the side of man. And here, this is the only place where this, this word is translated rib. It's just the word for side. But it looks like it's a, it's a good translation because it says one of his sides. So it seems to refer to multiple sides. And so it makes sense that this is rib. But this is an architectural term that usually refers to the, the sides, the supporting sides of a building or the supporting sides of a, a, a boat, for example. And so it's, it's fine to translate this rib, but, but hear the architectural uh, imagery here because he uses another one that is almost unique, a verb. So the Lord caused, man to, uh, caused a, a deep sleep to fall upon the Adam, the man, and while he slept, God took one of his sides, closed up the place, and the, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, and you'll see a footnote here, he built. He built the woman. And um, so he's, she's built out of the side of the man. And this is, this is architectural imagery, and it's almost unique in Scripture. There is only one other time, it's in Amos 9.6, where this word built is used to refer to God's creative activity. One commentator, reflecting on this architectural imagery, says this, that it indicates beauty, stability, and durability. And I, I think that's that's what what's going on here. That this is that this is a, a a work of art that God is doing here. This is a an architectural project that is the 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 magnum opus here of God's creation. The woman He built the woman out of the side of the man, and certainly Adam was impressed. The man was impressed because God took the woman to the man, and once he wakes up, he sees a woman for the first time. And he is overwhelmed. He really liked God's, <clears throat> God's construction, his, his building. He was impressed and he composed a spontaneous hymn, song, poem <clears throat> in verse 23. And it starts with, at last, or now, or finally. And we can think about all those animals that came parading before him. And we can, we can understand the man's excitement. He says, finally, now, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here we have the same wordplay that we had with Adam and Adama, except it goes in the other direction. Adama is feminine, and the Adam is taken out of the feminine. The, the Adam is the, 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 the man that's taken out of the Adama, the earth that's feminine. And now we have that she shall be called Isha, the feminine, because she was taken out of Ish. And so, it's the same sort of word play here. And what we have here in this, this word play is something that's very important, <clears throat> and particularly these days, when there's been a great deal of confusion about what is a man, what is a woman. And I want you to see something here. If you go back to, to uh, chapter 1, verse 27, 
it uses different words, and it refers to God making them male and female. Male and female. So they're a, a biological male and a biological female. And now, for the first time, we have two new words. The first time these words appear in, in Genesis. Now, the man is called, or the male, I should say, is called ish, called man, and the, the female is called woman. And so what we have here is, is something that, that people have assumed and, 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 and seen to be obvious for, for many generations up until recently, and that is that a, a biological male is what a man is, and a biological female is what a woman is. Now that's become important to be able to say, and also at the same time, we need to understand that there is confusion in our day, and really throughout all history, but perhaps being promoted more and celebrated more, this confusion. And how should we we go look at this as Christians? Well, as Christians, we should have great compassion, great compassion on those who are confused about their identity. But at the same time, we need to affirm the givenness and the goodness of the way that God has created us physically as males, men, as females, and women. And, in compassion and in love, help those who are struggling with these issues to be able to get to the point, by God's grace and by His Spirit's work, to be able to affirm the goodness and the reality of the way God has made us physically. Now, after, after this encounter here, we have the author of Genesis, Moses, we have him making a description. And this is not uh, Adam's words, these are, these are the author's words in verse 24. And here, this is the part that Jesus quotes, this is the part that Paul quotes. And here we have the first commentary description on what took place there with the man and the woman. And here it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in these these comments about the meaning of marriage, the author here talks about three aspects, three aspects of marriage. And we could label these aspects independence, permanence, and fidelity or faithfulness. So independence. The first thing is, and by the way, we know this is a comment not so much on, on the man, first man and woman, because it talks about a man doing what? Leaving his father and mother. Well, the first man and the first woman didn't have father and mother. So this is a comment about a permanent institution. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So there's independence, establishing an independent household. Now, now in the West, we don't really have to emphasize that much, because... We're, we're, we're of the idea that, that our children grow up to be independent, but in many cultures that has to be emphasized because the idea in many cultures is the, is the, the elders continue to control the lives even of the, the newly married couples. And, and by the way, that's something when that happens in our culture or any culture, it's very damaging to the marriage if they're not able to establish an independent household. So that's the first thing. And that also has some economic implications, doesn't it? If you're not economically ready to establish an independent household, you're not ready to form a marriage either. So there's some independence here. That's the first thing. The second is permanence. 
He unites himself to his wife. Here, I think it's translated, let's see, it says that he holds fast. The idea is he sticks himself, the old language was poetic, leaves and cleaves, uh, connects himself permanently to his wife. And that's, that's what happens in what we call a wedding. You don't find many weddings in Scripture, very few reference to weddings, but that's what a wedding is. It's a public ceremony in which a man sticks himself to his wife, in which he unites himself officially and publicly to his wife. And then the third is they bring their two bodies together. And it says the two will become one flesh. So here's the physical union of two bodies. Now, let's look at these aspects. These are three simple aspects, and they define marriage, but they define marriage as a covenant relationship or a contractual relationship. This language here, leave and unite, leave and cleave, or uh, separate or forsake and hold to, this is language that we find throughout the Old Testament referring to our relationship to the Lord. And there's a constant, constant call to the people of God, do not forsake, it's this word, do not forsake the Lord your God. Do not leave the Lord your God. Do not abandon the Lord your God. And so this is covenant language when it says that the man will forsake, leave, abandon his father and mother. Of course, continuing to honor them, but, but it's saying that there's a, a covenant relationship that's changing here. No longer under this covenant structure, but coming under another covenant relationship, that a contractual relationship. And then the other word as well refers to the relationship to the Lord throughout the Old Testament. Unite, hold fast. These also are also often translated in the Old Testament, devote yourselves to the Lord. They were devoted to the Lord. So this is, this is shot through with covenant imagery here. Now, that's important to note because a covenant has, has structure to it. It's not something we make up. It's not something we change. It's not something we adapt on whim. It is something that is given to us. And if marriage is a divinely instituted covenant or contract or pact, then that has many implications to it, doesn't it? It's not something that we can change on our own. It also means that marriage should not be broken. That's the first thing It's obvious. It should not be broken except by Death, And that's still built into our, our marriage vows until death parts us. The second thing is, the order of these three steps is important. These are chronological steps. The first thing is establishing the ability to be independent. The, the next thing is to have what we call a wedding, however small or great that might be, in which there is an official union of the man to the woman. And then the third step is to bring the two bodies together. And when we get these steps out of order, things misfire. Now, if they've, if they've started out of order, and as a pastor I've been involved in many, many relationships in which they started out of order, and by God's grace these things can be put in order once again, and God can straighten these things out, and none of us, none of us can say, I am clean in these matters as well. No one can say that 100%. All of us, in one degree or another, have gotten things out of order. But these, there's a reason for this order here. And we need to insist on that and follow that as believers. And the final thing is this. The identity of the eligible partners should be respected. 
So the eligible partners are one man, which is a biological male, and one woman, a biological female. And we see throughout Scripture that that there are are deviations from this, where where the numbers don't add up, and and they're instead of one and one, it becomes one and multiple. Uh, that's that's the first deviation, and then there are other deviations as well. But all of those are deviations from the the good plan of God here. Now. If we're distressed by the deterioration of marriage in our day, and you often hear that kind of lament among Christians, then, then what should we do about it? And this, this, is the, this is the takeaway. And that's this. We should have good marriages. We should work on our marriages. That's what we need to do. Uh, this, this is not so much a call to march in the streets. Uh, maybe you, you'll be called to do that as a citizen of, of your state or the United States or whatever you might want to do in terms of, of legal questions, but, but really this is a call to Christians. If we really want the world to see the, the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of what He made, there is one very, very powerful way, the most powerful way of all to do that, and that is to have good marriages ourselves. And that's the plan for this, this series that we're going to be doing. It's not going to be all about marriage, but we're going to start with marriage. That's the goal, that we would have marriages, that, that people would stand back, and they, they may say, I hate what you believe. I don't believe a word of what you believe, but I want to have a marriage like yours. I don't know what, what it is about you, because I, I, I can't understand, because I despise your faith, but I love your marriage. And maybe there's some connection there between the two. Would you please tell me, would you please explain to me what it is that you have that everyone else is looking for and that I'm looking for as well? That's the call for us as believers. Now, this a lot is at stake here because the goodness of God's plan for marriage, since it's a covenant relationship, also shows forth the goodness of God's plan for His people. Because as we will see in more detail next week, and as we see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, marriage is a, a picture of something bigger. It's a, it's a reflection. It's a mirror. It's a window into something bigger than itself. Throughout the Old Testament, God is the husband of His people. And in the New Testament, Christ is the husband of His bride, the church. And so, what is at stake here? What is at stake here is the question of the relationship between God and His people because that's the, that's the picture that God has built into creation by, by marriage so that we can look at marriage and we can see something of what God has for His people. Now, next week, we will find that something went wrong. Something went wrong in that initial relationship that God had set up between Himself and His people uh, the, the divine husband and his, his beloved bride. Something, something interfered there. And, and that something that went wrong was on the part of the bride going astray from the husband. And not only did that affect the relationship with God, but it also messed up the marriage relationship. And it does to this day. And we're talking about the entrance of sin. We'll look at this next week. And we'll also look at another text. Now we'll go to the New Testament next week. But I, I want to give you a preview of this. Because this, this is really what marriage points to. And that is this amazing message 
that this God, estranged from his beloved wife, because of that wife's unfaithfulness, this God who made all things became Adam. This, this God who made the earth became part of his creation. He became human. He became Adam. And as Adam, as a man, he gave his life for his beloved bride. And even shockingly, this, the second Adam was buried under the Adama for three days under the earth and rose again so that he might give life to his beloved bride, forgiving us for our rebellion, restoring us in his ways. That's, that's the good news. And that's the, the message to which marriage points. And so our goal in this is not only to learn theoretically about marriage, but to have marriages that people can look at and say, now I understand how much Jesus loves His people. Now I understand the glory of being part of His church, the bride of Jesus Christ. That's the goal, that our marriages would show forth the good news about Jesus. So let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this opportunity to start the year going back to first principles. And while we're concerned about what's happening in our world and the the denigration and modification of marriage, the rejection thereof, Lord, more concerning for us is the state of Your church. And we pray, O God, that that You would start with us as we think about marriage and that that You would work in our marriages, O God that we might have marriages that show forth Your love, that show forth Your grace, that show forth the Gospel of Jesus. And as we move through this series at the beginning of this year, O God, I pray that You would do that. That You would touch us in the places we need to be touched. That You would challenge us in the ways we need to be challenged. That You would expose our sin as husbands or wives or as future husbands or wives. And that You would enable us to, by Your grace, confess and repent and, and grow so that our marriages might be more and more that beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. And we pray this in His name. Amen.